This is Diver, podcast about diversity, equity, and inclusion in special education research. I'm your host, Federico Weitler, associate professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago and board member of the Division of Research of the Council for Exceptional Children. Welcome, 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 welcome to our fourth episode of Dive In, a podcast about diversity, equity, and inclusion in special education research, sponsored by the Division of Research of the Council for Exceptional Children. Today, we have a very, very special guest, someone who has been in the field for quite some time, someone who has written iconic books and articles that I'm sure you read in your doctoral preparation and beyond. She comes to share her wisdom, to share her experiences and her perspectives about how special education has addressed issues of equity, diversity, and inclusion across history. She comes to also to tell her perspectives about the present and how she dreams about the future of special education research. Today, my dear listeners, we will listen to the only and fabulous Beth Harry. Let's listen to the interview. Well, thank you, Beth, so much for agreeing to this interview. I'm so excited that you are here and, and accompany us in this podcast and that you're going to share your wisdom with us uh, in this episode. Um, so welcome and, and thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Frederico. My pleasure to be here. Um, so my first question, and one of the reasons I um, I was I, I brought you to the show, to the episode, is you know you have a wealth of information that uh, younger scholars, I mean, not that I'm that young, but younger scholars like me don't have. So I wanted to tell us a little bit how issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion were discussed and addressed in special education research when you, when you started in the field. Well, that's a great question. And <laughs> I, the nutshell answer is it was nowhere to be seen. Uh-huh. So let me fill that in a little. I began my studies, my formal studies in special ed in 1986, and this was at Syracuse University. Mm. So uh, the one thing to know about Syracuse, it was at that time a leader in the special ed field. Mm. Names like Bob Bogdan, Bicklin, of course, Wolfensberger, people like that, who, who before Wolfensberger, really, um, Burton Blatt. Mm. Those were people who uh, had been in the forefront of the deinstitutionalization movement. Mm. So uh, it was a cons actually quite a radical place at that time, and actually still is, I think, but yeah, with yeah, a yeah. different focus now. But at the time, the focus was on very much on uh, significant disabilities. Mm rather than on the high incidence disabilities. Mm. And so that, that might be part of why I would say diversity is, was not really in the picture because, at, well, it, it, it should have been everywhere, but it wasn't. And I think part of it at Syracuse was just that the, because the focus was on severe disabilities, it really reinforced the basic premise of special education at that time, which was that a disability represents an intrinsic deficit in an individual. Mm. 
Therefore, there was very little consideration of context. Mm. Very little consideration, if any, of culture, race, social class, none of that. Because it was assumed that the disability belonged to the person that they were born with it, it came into the world with it. Mm. And it was a matter of uh, attempting to help that person develop as best they could, despite mm. the disability. That was the approach. So if you use the term diversity at the time, you know, in a way it was closer to what we call today neurodiversity, because mm. the answer was people would say, well, yeah, we do, we do attend to diversity because diversity, there's diversity of abilities within people. And that's what special ed is all about. That's what we're looking at. And we have the individualized education plans to address individual needs. Yeah. So that's how it was thought of. But the idea of ethnic language, racial, cultural uh, issues as part of what needed to be considered in responding to the needs of individuals with disabilities was not on the table. Mm. And I Can would you say to us a little the- bit. Uh, I'm I'm sorry. Um, uh, I don't want to unfold your your age, but can you tell us a little bit what what year is this that you're talking about to give us an idea? Uh, okay. Well, I started in 1986. Okay. I, I in my in the special ed program at Syracuse, I graduated in in 89. That's a PhD uh, uh, program. Um, so I'll give you a little more context for that time. So I would say at that time. There were there were some studies that came out in the 80s, late 80s, coming into the early 90s, which looked at the participation of black parents, for example. There mm. were one or two that looked at uh, Latino parents also. Um, for example, I think of somebody named Robert Ma- Marion, who nobody may be aware of, the younger people nowadays, but mm-hmm. Marion was one of the first people who ever raised the question of, well, what's happening to black parents in the IEP process? Mm. Um, because the assumption was once more, it's a it's a race neutral. It's a race neutral yeah. process. As long as it's done right, it's okay. And he and a few other people uh, raised that question. So that was the that was a, those were the first hints that I saw of attention to diversity in the late eighties. Now the other theme besides participation of parents was disproportionality, and of course mm. that had been identified much earlier. Yeah. So we know 1969 was Dunn's uh, yeah. piece that brought to the attention of the field the, the overrepresentation of um, Latino and African American children in special education programs. And then, but nothing much happened to it for a while until 1982. Mm-hmm. The National Academy of Sciences commissioned uh, did a, a study of disproportionality which was published by Heller, Holtzman, and Messick in, I think, just about 82. Mm-hmm. So the knowledge of disproportionality was present, and it obviously was seen as a, a uh, an issue related to race. Uh, but I would say it was not till the 90s that the debate gained more attention in the mainstream of special ed such as special education journals, for example, mm, yeah. where I remember a, an article published by Artiles and Stan Trent, yeah, probably about 1995, mm. where they were talking about disproportionality and really hitting the point of race and, and so on. 
And some of my work also began to bring some more attention to that. Um, so through the 80s and 90s, it was, it was little hints at first, and then it was building, but the disproportionality piece really caught attention um, by the middle of the 90s. And then in the in 2002, the National Association, sorry, the National Academy of Sciences did another study of mm -hmm. disproportionality. Yeah. Which was ultimately published by Donovan and Cross. I had the honor of being of serving on that panel. Hmm. Uh, it was not an easy task, but uh, I can imagine. It, no, so I would say by by two thousand, you know, we had the question of because of disproportionality, we had the question of race on the table, and and I would say that was sort of to me, and I mean, other people might totally disagree with me and maybe I'm sure I'm missing a lot because I'm really just giving a very brief summary here but to me that was kind of the peak hmm. of when the issues of diversity as related to race and ethnicity and social class in 2002 you think you say center. I would say to the, around 2002 the early 2000s yeah um so so for what are you saying I see like you kind of identifying two areas in where special education research has has been dealing with issues of race and and class um and gender too I would say uh one was like relationship of parents in IP meetings you know what's going yes. on with minoritized parents in IP meetings and the other one of course was the one note of representation disproportionality yeah. um and uh do you think uh, from there and now the the view on race has has changed and, and yeah. how so? Well, yes, very much so. Um, I would say as race ethnicity started to take center stage, it it gradually started to replace the argument that diversity meant diversity of in, of disabilities. So it started to force the field to open the concept of disability and to understand it in more of a contextual, in contextual settings. Um, there were, well, let, let me just, I, I will just speak of, of the work that Jeanette Klingner and myself did at this mm -hmm. point. We were not the only people, of course, doing this at this point, but I would say we were very fortunate. We were placed at a, at a, academically at a point where the interest was really very high in the topic. And Jeanette and I responded to an invitation for a grant from the Office for Special Education Programs, OSEM. Um, that was the late 90s, it was 1999. Hmm. Um, and <laughs> I could give lots of anecdotes. I don't want to spend a lot of time on anecdotes, but I can tell you that um, when we decided to approach this topic, we responded to the call for research offered by OSEP. Um, I can recall Jeanette in particular had a, a friend, a colleague who was quite concerned and told her, look, I think you might be going to wreck your, um, your career if mm. you decide to focus on race and disability at this point. Wow. Um, Jeanette's focus really was her background was English language learners, um, which, of course, is a group who suffer from all kinds of biases within the special ed system because of language differences. 
but she did have a friend who told her, you know, I don't think you should be doing this. Wow. Um, wow. Well, she ignored it, ignored the, the advice, fortunately. Thank God she did, because you you and her wrote a yeah, fantastic um, book. Very glad she did. Um, I was already, I mean, I guess I was seen as a black scholar, so people weren't so worried about me. <laughs> I mean, ma'am, that might sound foolish to say, but maybe you understand what I mean, Frederica. Yeah. That uh, you know, it was kind of what not so surprising that I would focus on race. Yeah, but Jeanette was not really being encouraged to do so. But she was committed to the concept, and we got the grant. And what we did really was we used the analysis that had been done by Heller Holtzman and Messick in 1982, the 1982 publication of the National Association of the National Academy of Sciences study, in which what they said was, they said, look, it's not a question of just disproportionality. It's a question of how did the kids get there? Hmm. What happened in the very beginning at school? What happened when they were identified as having problems? What happened when they were referred? What happened when they were evaluated? What happened when they were placed? Was the placement detrimental or was it helpful? So they said, look, unless we understand whether the process itself is inequitable, then we can't even say it's an inequitable pattern. Mm. So we were really engaged by that argument, and that was the way we modeled our research. So what we did was we looked at kids, and we actually followed kids from their earliest days, kindergarten and uh, first grade to see what kind of instruction they were getting there prior to any consideration of disability. Because by this time we were looking at, you know, the high incidence disabilities, because of course that's mm. where the disproportionality debate falls for the most part. Um, and then we observed the kids through the period where the sort of red flags were going up saying, oh, oh this kid's having a problem. Then the formal process of actually referring them how that process went, then the actual evaluations, and then the placement. So we've we looked at uh, the overall patterns of these processes in twelve schools, and then we've narrowed the lens on to select twelve students whom we studied in in detail, um, and our view of them included uh, extensive interviews with everyone concerned with them, their parents, um, their teachers, patho uh, speech pathologists, and so on. And, and yeah, and this was, I remember this was multiple schools too, right? It was not just one school. I remember it was we like at least three schools. So it was a very large ethnographic study. It was a large ethnographic study. It took three years, really four. We added on a fourth year just to follow up on how the kids were doing. But mm -hmm. the ethnographic portion was three years. Um, and so I think um, I think that study w made a difference because just because it, you know that there's nothing like qualitative data if it's well done. Yeah, yeah. Because we were able to look at how things were happening rather than simply saying, "Oh, look at the numbers." Um, I would say currently. Because you are, I'm responding now to your question about how SPED, special ed has dealt with issues of DEI over time. Um, so I would say 
apparently from since that time we published that study first in 2007 mm -hmm. and uh we had a second edition 2012 and i was asked to do a third edition which was just published i think last year yeah um since that time the contextual lens has become even broader so as you well know the cultural historical lens that was so very well described by Artiles and yourself and many of his of his um scholars that cultural historical lens um really broadened the picture and asked us to look not just at the processes like as Jeanette and I had looked at that are occurring currently but to go back mm -hmm. and see okay where is this coming from what's the history how is the history affecting what we're seeing today um and even more recently uh the work that yourself and many others are doing and I'll talk a bit about those in a, in a few minutes but that whole concept that um that Tate introduced of I think he called it the geography of opportunity mm -hmm. which is now expressed as a geospatial view which you've done yeah. work on I, that now I think really shows how far we've come in broadening that lens and deepening it mm. to understand how the how endemic the patterns the structures that lead to disproportionality are how mm -hmm. deep and how long they are and i would just say before i go to the, your next question that you know this lens is really the same long distance lens that's been established by critical race theory yeah yeah so it's really a question of how history is embedded in present structures mm -hmm. and how and that can be applied to race disability it can be applied to just about any socially constructed uh concept and identity identity uh because nothing happens just this morning mm -hmm. the present yeah. is a reflection of the past so so that's how i think i that's how i see that it has changed and become broader and deeper mm -hmm. and more structural in, in focus do you are, are you seeing pieces coming out right now that are, are really uh grabbing your attention and 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 make make you think oh i wish i would have thought of this uh absolutely yeah oh i don't even wish i could have thought of it because <laughs> we had enough on our place the stuff we were doing i'd have gone yeah, crazy yeah. if i tried to add add some of the wonderful things that are happening now I really i'm really impressed with the work i'm seeing along the lines i just mentioned yeah um well okay so the concept of discrete mm -hmm. yeah uh, so disability critical race theory which was promoted mainly by anama uh, ferry and connor yeah. and others have yeah. worked with them since but that that concept i think it seems to me what they did was they pulled in pre what streams of understanding that were previously running parallel yeah so the idea of disability was running as a parallel stream to race or racism and although it was evident that there was a connection because Dunn's work on disproportionality pointed it out in 1969 yeah. but 
people don't really want to deal with race. It's too deep. It's too hard. It's too painful. Disability actually is easier to deal with. Mm. Um, because somehow you don't have to blame anybody for mm. a disability. Whereas we can't talk about race without knowing what happened in the, in the past. So I think that might be why they were so parallel for a long time. But I think the concept of Descript pulled them together yeah. and started to show using the intersectionality concept, mm-hmm. how deeply embedded they are in each other. Do you um, think that, uh, let me ask you, do you think that that they were running parallel, not just because scholars, were, I mean, they were not consolidating this idea of like uh, uh, seeing critically disability in conjunction with race, but also do you think that on the other side of the aisle, like people who were doing critical race theory, people who are doing equity issue, uh, was was hesitant about engaging with disability as well, I think. Well, you know, that's true. Yeah, that's true. So that would make me sort of modify what I just said about it being easier to deal with disability than race. It might just depend on who you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think so. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I agree. Yeah, well said. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, you know, and I want to... I wanted to ask you also, I know you talk a little bit about an anecdote about when you, Janet, was applying for this grant, but I know also when you, I mean, I, I read your, your book with Janet in my doctoral years, Alfredo Ortiz made us read it, and uh, and also yeah. we, we were able to go and see you, and I think we, we had, we invite you over at some point, we were in Crest, the National Center for Cultural mm-hmm. Response oh, Education yeah. System was going on at that point. Right. Um, when you were going to present your this work to CC, uh, or or an ARA in, in the special ed seat or whatever you present in this work. Did you did you have a lot of pushback at that moment? Um, I don't know. I mean, this, you're thinking to the professional organizations in particular, eh? Yeah, like others. Like CC and ARA. Yeah. Um, let me put it this way: AERA has been much more welcoming to the concept of intersectionality and all of the issues around race Mm -hmm. and disability. Um, Much more welcoming than CEC, Mm. which is not surprising Mm -hmm. because I think CEC, and I'm speaking very generally not of individual scholars, Mm -hmm. but I think that generally CEC has, and maybe I might be out of touch, but my sense is CEC has been more, uh, continue to be more committed to the intrinsic deficit notion mm-hmm. and and more resistant to considering the socially constructed nature mm. of the disabilities. Whereas AERA, because its focus is so much on culture um, in education, I, I found that they were more receptive. Um, for myself, I did more presentations. I presented the work more at AARA than at CEC. Mm. Um, my yeah. work on working with parents was always welcome at CEC. Mm-hmm. But the disproportionality piece was not necessary. That, was, that is very interesting because your work with parents also, I mean, maybe you didn't, I don't remember if you mentioned explicitly racism, but you are talking about, you know, racist practice in IP meetings, right? Be- Parents being overlooked, parents, uh, uh, I, uh, professionals, yeah. uh, uh, assuming that parents don't know anything, right? Uh, yeah. But that's that was still accepted, 
and just the other one wasn't. So I'm kind of struggling why why <laughs> why one was was is more easy to digest than other. What a good question. Um, there were people in the CEC realm who were very engaged in uh, studying parent participation. It was an established uh, stream within within the field, parent participation generally. Now, historically, that had focused mostly on white and middle-class parents. Mm -hmm. I myself was actually invited to participate in some of the work some of those people did in order to bring a diversity perspective to them. Mm. And that would have been in the late 90s. I would mention also uh, my colleague, Maya Kalyanpur, who is currently mm. at San Diego State University. Yeah. And she and I did a lot of work together. And so we and we got actually got invited to participate in that CEC based conversation about parent participation. So somehow people saw the need for parents to be able to participate, which didn't necessarily have to take account of the social construction issues. Mm. You understand what I'm saying, Frederico? I'm not sure yeah. if I'm clear. No, no, no. That that research is it's um compatible with a medical view of disability. Doesn't mean that you had it or the scholars did, but you can have a medical view of disability and and conduct that kind of you know, research or engage in that kind of research. It's, yeah. I think it's it's easier to yeah. to understand in that way. Yeah, yeah. So something like that is what happened. And um uh, the actual really deep considerations of race and and social construction of race, social construction of of uh, of disability and how they intersected was really like I said, it was only at AERA that we got to explore mm. that. Um, have, you, have you ever felt uh, uh, attacked or 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 have you ever felt like people were uh, uh, you you really pushed the button and people were a little defensive about the. Uh, that work when it came out? Um, you know, I think that probably the people who are defensive or uncomfortable just didn't reach out to me. Mm. <laughs> we That's never good. got much. I never, neither, I, well, maybe Jeanette did, but I never got much um, pushback that I was mm. really aware of. In fact, to the contrary, I would say that some people felt I was too soft mm. on the issue of race. Interesting. Now, Jeanette and I, when we did that study, we we certainly focused on race. That was the subtitle of our book was understanding race and disability in schools. Mm -hmm. But we saw we viewed race in the context of socioeconomic status mm. and cultural patterns, the cultural expectations of teachers. And the cultural expectations of kids and their families <clears throat> and the discrepancies that came about there. So we certainly looked at bias and racism, but some people feel that we were too soft. Um, you know, I've had it said that we should have hit the racism piece more mm. powerfully. Um, Did you make those decisions when you were at that time or was something that it, it didn't? in that moment didn't occur to you? No, I think it occurred to us. I think it occurred to us, but we, 
there are probably two things happening. One is our focus was really context. Mm. And me, I can't think about race without thinking of social class. I, mm. I, can't, I, can't, I can't. To me, the intersections were so obvious. And even ethnicity. And when I say ethnicity, I mean, for instance, the differences between how Haitian-American families mm. were treated as compared to what they call Hispanic families in Miami, compared to African-American families. So it's not just a matter of black and white or mm-hmm. brown. It was a matter of the ethnic groups in the in the city, in this particular context, who has the power, mm. who had the connections at the school district. And it wasn't necessarily whites. Uh, mm. Hispanics are very powerful in South in South Florida. Yeah. And so the, the picture was very, very mixed and interesting. So we felt that we wanted to show the nuances of these issues. Hmm. We were not sort of just wanting to just say race, 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 because it's not only race. Mm-hmm. Even languages, Spanish is more valued, highly valued in South Florida than mm-hmm. is Haitian Creole. Yeah. Yeah. Right? There's a hierarchy, definitely. Yeah. So, yeah. So there's a huge, there are hierarchies, exactly. Anyhow. So that's what I, I think that... um I don't think we got that much pushback. I think the people who wanted to push back didn't bother or didn't mm. say it to us very much. And and some people didn't think we went far enough. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, it was yeah. definitely a, 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 a pillar in, in many of the work that came after, you know, it was, science is gradual, so we can't address everything. And well, thank people you. Have, yeah. pe- people have built yeah. from your work as well. Um and well, you, you kind of tell us a little bit about where you see the the, the field now. Um, um, where do you see it? I mean, I'm going to jump to 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 one of the the, the last questions that I I, I sent okay. it to you. Uh, now that we're talking about past, present, well, let's talk about the future. Where where do you see, or where where do you see the field going? Uh, where do you see it's gonna? Where you think it's gonna? going to happen in the last five years in the next five years sorry yeah i mean i would like to say that the things that i mentioned that i think are really strengths in the way we've moved forward that those folk that those folk i will continue and yield more and more understanding i would like to say Mm. that i would like to think that um, I would like to think that the geospatial approach, the whole cultural historical approach, um, discrete, the understanding of the social construction processes at work, mm-hmm. even with children with significant disabilities. Mm. I'd like to think that all of those processes will continue to receive a great deal of attention in, in the research. Um, I do want to mention one or two studies that I really would love to tell all my students. If I was still teaching, I would say, go read these books. Yes. And yeah. one of them is a book by Volga Rides, Oh, yeah. Published in 2018. And the yeah. book is called Does Compliance Matter in Special Education? Yes. Yeah. Idea and the Hidden Inequities of Practice. So, um. I mentioned this particularly because it's a deep qualitative study of context and process. Mm. 
I love qualitative work. I, I love books. I prefer a book to an article any day. Because yeah. when we have to write an article, you have to strip it down and just give the skeleton. Yeah. The bonus, but yeah. if you do a really good qualitative study, you want to write a book. Yeah, and Catherine Bulgarinas did that, and her book is beautiful. It mm. really shows, you know, how things happen. It compares different um, demographic groups within the same state, and how different groups got different types of processes according to their socioeconomic and perceived uh, social status. Mm. Um, something like that, I would say. I I would also love to mention uh, Aiden Bal's work mm -hmm. on learning labs, where yeah. he's really showing how collaboration with all the stakeholders mm -hmm. can help to really understand the processes involved in um in disproportionality. Uh, and and that there is a study that I I just got to say, but this is a line of again geospatial studies. Coming out of Syracuse, at least partly Syracuse group, led by Ashby and White and others. Yeah. And I think, and yourself uh, are involved in some of these studies, but the one that hit me like a, wow, it hit me like a thunderclap mm. was by Ashby and White. Yeah. 2019, and it was called the same as it ever was. Yeah, yeah. And they trace the, history of the the sort of distribution of socioeconomic status in the city over a period of almost 100 years and how the socioeconomic status of students interacts with their placement in special education programs and shows how it has hardly changed. Yeah. yeah, now, yeah. When I read this, I think all these people who are shouting about critical race theory, you know, they don't have any idea what they're talking about most of the time. At least that's my impression. Yeah. The people who are criticizing, and I, want, I mean, all the polit politicians. Mm -hmm. and stuff. If they would just read a study like that, and that was a study in a journal. So that's, that's a, like I said, it's kind of stripped down, but it's quicker to read than a book. Um, if they would just read that, they would, they would say, oh, that's what you're talking about. I mean, it's not. I don't know. I don't know, man. I think they would read that and they... They were what completely. Would they uh, what would they say? What What's now, the counter argument? What's the counter argument? Uh, that I don't know. They, they will discount the evidence, or they will accept it for a minute. But I think those beliefs are so deeply ingrained that I don't think research is going to change them. <laughs> Maybe I'm a little pessimistic, but those those beliefs about the inexistence of a structural racism goes beyond rationality. It goes so tied to emotion and people's biographies that I don't think there is a piece of research that would change it. But you don't, you don't, you don't think that, uh, that information makes a difference and that people sometimes just don't have the information. You don't really think so. Uh, no, I think information is widely <laughs> available. I mean, uh, you know, there's, I don't there's know. Books. special education research is not widely available. I mean, it's no, available to true. special education researchers. That's true. That's true. Well, who but, reads it? Yeah, but there are other books about structural racism that have been yeah. bestsellers and really true, uh, true. they speak into the crowd, you know, or maybe some people that has a disposition may read the book and have a better understanding and be stronger on the belief, but I don't know, I see it different. But I like your optimism. <laughs> I can't um, live without it, Frederico, I can't. That's true, that's true. I'm becoming <laughs> a little, a little, uh, um, 
<laughs> a little wary. A little wary, I know. And I think the politics of the current time yeah. make it difficult to maintain our optimism. Yeah, I know. I, I was about to ask you about that. You know, there is there's such a big backlash to DI. I mean, you're in Florida. I mean, you're in yeah, the epicenter of all this. I'm telling uh, you. I mean, what, I mean, I don't know if we, I don't know if you have an advice. What would you tell like uh, uh, people doing research in Florida on this issue? Like, you know, we, we probably, I'm sure, you have colleagues that are still in the field that are in Florida. I mean, yeah. What do you well, tell them? I honestly don't know what I tell them, and I'm just glad I don't have to I have to tell them anything. <laughs> I can stay home and pull my curtains, but not really, not really. I'm really glad to be here. For example, that you're yeah. giving me an opportunity to talk a little bit more again. Well, you know, um, I guess what I would say is regarding this backlash, um, I, it might be easy for me to say because if you're actually in the field and you're going to get, you know, fired because mm -hmm. you're doing something that's important, well, I, I can't speak quite to that. But I am encouraged a bit by the fact that just recently, it's been brought to my attention that OSEP, that's the Office for Special Education Programs, um, actually has currently have a call out offering a grant to do an some in-depth study of the identification of overrepresentation in the states, which you know is mm. the Department of Education has required, I should say, IDEA has required that states report on their disproportionate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, OSEP actually has a grant out right now, which is huh. whose goal is to study that in more depth to find out what's really happening, to try to identify what they call the root causes of it. Of it. Um, and I, I was surprised when I was invited to participate on a more limited level. And I said, wow, OSEP's actually putting out a grant like that right mm -hmm. now? Mm -hmm. And the answer was yes. So, I mean, I'm not going to comment on why I think they're doing it right now. But anyway, it's encouraging. So I think they're, that that was a nice surprise. Yeah. Um, so there's a little hope out there. I would, I would also like to say that I think in a way, one of our strategies as academics is going to have to be to just be determined not to be scared off mm. by the attitudes and not to be trapped, not to let ourselves get trapped into the boxes that people want to put us in. Mm. Like you're a critical race theorist yeah. or you're talking about intersectionality or something. Because like I said before, the majority of people out there don't even know what it's about. And I'll mm. give you an example. So a colleague of mine told me this story recently. She was talking with some people and she, well, it was funders, actually. And she used the term CRT, meaning culturally responsive teaching. Teaching, yeah. So the people she was talking to got into a panic and said, oh, my God, you can't say that. You can't use that term because it sounds like critical race theory. So she said, oh, OK. So she thought about it. And then she went back and she said, OK, well, let's talk instead about culturally sustaining pedagogy, which if you wanted to give it a, I guess it would be CSP. Yeah. So at least it's not CRT. And that was okay. The yeah, people yeah. who were concerned about the CRT accepted this. And as she said to me, she said, you know, that was so ironic because culturally sustaining pedagogy is a far more radical yeah. Yeah. conception 
than is culturally responsive teaching. But people, as long as it didn't sound like critical race theory, they were happy. They were going to think about it. So I guess the message I want to give from that is let's not be too scared. Mm. Like people think they know what they're talking about when they really have not examined the concepts. Mm. Um, I think it's kind of up to us to keep talking and to find ways to explain ourselves and explain the concepts in such a way that, well, at least people don't shut their ears down the minute you open your mouth. Yeah, yeah. And I do think that's important. People, mm-hmm. you know, they, you you may be right that maybe the fears and the prejudices are so deep that people can't hear, but some people can. Yeah. And I think it's up to us to find ways to keep the conversations open and not to assume that we cannot speak to people mm. because they won't understand because a lot of it might depend on how we present our point of view, mm. which again might be partly why some people think I'm too soft. <laughs> or too hopeful. They call us hopeful, right? It's a better word. Hopeful. Right. Um, well, Beth, we're almost about to wrap up the yes. interview. The last question I'm going to ask you is a question that I ask everybody. You kind of give some uh, some readings that you you thought about that that you kind of recommend to people. But uh, beyond that, can you give me three pieces of advice for special education researchers to center equity and justice in their research? Can you imagine in your mind like? A new, you know, assist new assistant professor getting into the field. What advice would you give this person uh, uh, to 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 do work on 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 diversity when inclusion special education okay. research? So I would link my first comment to what I just said. Um, don't be intimidated, mm. or try not to be intimidated by people throwing labels at you because they mm. will. They'll want to say, you're in this box, you're in that box. Um, Try not to be intimidated by that. Try to to get people to explain what they mean Mm. by that box and to explain your interpretation of that box or your role within it or to give a more nuanced understanding of the perspective you're using. Yeah. Um, I, I continue to think that people are not stupid. They yeah, may be yeah, prejudiced, yeah. but I, I believe that we need to try to find ways to explain why what we're saying is important and not, not give up. So that's one thing I would say. I would say in research, try to blend the qualitative and the quanti- quantitative data. Mm-hmm. Um, if only because people always do want to see the generalized pattern on the surface, which is what the quant gives you. But you must really go for in-depth qualitative data if you want to understand how things happen. Mm. Um, And by that, I mean really carefully collected data that's analyzed in a transparent way where you can explain how you analyzed it. Not just, well, I thought I saw these themes. Yeah. So we need really good qualitative research methodologies to be available Mm. to students, to young researchers. And they need to take that really seriously. Um, (laughs) And kind of in in 
going hand in hand with that, I would say, don't let the statistical manipulations confuse you. Mm. There are studies that you can look at that have such complicated, apparently complicated statistical Mm. um, methods that I don't know how many people even in the field could even read the stuff and know what's being said. And so you get confused. You think, oh, my God, I don't understand this. So it must be very important. I mean, I, I, I can't even read. What does he mean? And then they can come up with conclusions that are totally out of whack with experience. Mm. And with the mainstream, or I wouldn't even say the mainstream, but with a great um, significant body of research that shows just the opposite of the conclusions they're coming to. So don't let the statistics confuse you. Don't be value them and try to understand them. And if you really can't understand the method somebody has described, get a, a colleague who really gets the stats to to read with you and to really understand so that yeah. you can critique what you're what you're reading. And and just don't get intimidated by it because that people use that, the stats, to kind of well. They use it to confuse people. That's what I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, those are great three pieces of advice, Beth. And, and and with that, we're gonna we conclude our interview. And I want to thank you so much for dedicating us some time. And um, hopefully, maybe in a year or so, we'll 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 chat again and and see yeah. how you see the field later on. Thank you so much. What a pleasure to be able to talk with you, Federico. Thank you. Thanks for listening to us today. I hope you learned from Beth as much as I did. Our field has definitely been changing and shifting how we addresses issues of equity, diversity, and inclusion. Having Beth here today gives us some tools for thinking, for how we engage in our present research, and for also how we dream about the future of special education research. Before we finish, I wanted to tell you that if you are not a member of the Council for Sentinel Children, CC, please, I encourage you to do so. And if you are a member of CC, but you are not a member of the Division of Research, I encourage you more to uh, become a member of the Division of Research and join us in the please. Um, please also subscribe to our podcast and pass the word. Encourage your peers to listen. And this is it for today. See you next time.